Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we're going to be talking about should writers only write what they know? Question mark. Question mark. Um, and in the second part of today's episode, we're going to be pitting two queens of the golden age of crime mm. against one another. So we're going to be talking about Dorothy L. Sayers' Whose Body and Agatha Christie's 450 to Paddington, or for our American readers, what Mrs. M- listeners, I should say, and yes. readers, I'm sure <laughs> well, you, yes. but you do yes. both, um, <laughs> what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw, which is quite a mouthful, actually, isn't it? It is. And for our English listeners, 450 from Paddington rather than uh, 450 to, to, to Paddington. Paddington. <laughs> Sorry, apologies. Prepositions. Very important, as yeah. I often tell my students. Um, so, Happy New Year, Simon. Happy New Year. Our first podcast of 2020, can we believe that? I know. Sorry that it's been a bit longer than expected, mm-hmm. everyone. We did have a date planned in December and I'd lost my voice, so yeah. <laughs> that did not go ahead because voice relatively important. Although Rachel, I'm sure, would have loved just chatting away to herself <laughs> while I sort of whispered my agreements. <laughs> I would have got a word in entry. <laughs> Um, yeah, poor old Simon, back-to-back colds, really. I mean, it was a bit of a rotten December for you. Thankfully, healthy again by Christmas, so that was nice. Yes. Yeah. Blessing, what a blessing. Um, so, what, what have you been up to? What are you reading? Tell us all. Sure. So, yeah, I had a nice Christmas break now, back into it. Um, and, I, I, as you know, I always do a list of my favourite books of the year. Yes. Which is always fun. Um, and my book of the year... Obviously, it wasn't published last year, but uh, mm. I was slightly surprised, but it ended up being The Book of William by Paul Collins, and I can't remember whether or not I've spoken about that on the podcast before. Well, but, I've not heard you speak about it, I don't uh, So it's non-fiction. Um, I, it's about Shakespeare's first folio, and it traces it from why it was published um, and printed in the first place through it, the changing um, views of its value and different people trying to compete to edit different versions of Shakespeare's work in, uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, or 18th century, um, through to how it became this massively valuable concept through to modern day. And it's, yeah, just really engrossing and enjoyable. And I love reading about Shakespeare and Shakespeareana, I guess. Um, and yeah, com- I was, I'd had it on my shelf for many years without picking it up and thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And completely swept away and loved it. So I would highly wow. recommend to anyone who's just interested in bibliomania in general or Shakespeare in particular. Fantastic. Did you have a book of last year? Was it Miss Hargraves? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, I haven't really had a chance to think about it. Um, I've been away. I went away to Jordan for um, after Christmas, yeah. and then I went straight back to. I got back on Saturday, and I went back to work on Monday. So I haven't had a chance to do anything blog related at all or look at lists of books or anything so that's um that's gonna be a job for next week when hopefully my schedule will be a bit less crammed um and i can't think of i mean i've, I've had lots of really uh, great discoveries uh, last year actually it's going to be difficult for me to choose one book because i i came across a couple of authors that were new to me that i really enjoyed uh reading more than one of their books so kate atkinson i think mm. i started reading last year um, the year is so long, isn't it? You never know when did I did I read that yes, in January? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and also, we we read um, oh, what's his face, Alva and Alva and Little. Oh, Edward Carey. That was just at the end of the previous year. Oh, was it? It was because I remember you saying that 
Oh, yes, it was my favourite book of last year, wasn't it? Gosh, no, time flies, isn't it? Um, So, yeah, there's lots of of people that I've I've started reading for the first time, so I'm going to have to to think carefully about that because it'll be tough to make a decision I think there's something to get people coming back for the next episode mm, thrilling <laughs> and at the moment I'm reading um, My Caravaggio Style by Doris Langley Moore which is one of the new furrowed middlebrow novels oh yes um, they've reprinted it from the 50s I haven't worked out why it's called My Caravaggio Style but that might be because I don't know anything about Caravaggio but it's <laughs> it, it's about a man who decides to fake Byron's memoirs um, ah. Yeah, <laughs> and he's quite an unpleasant man. I think he's meant to be, and I, and I believe that Doris Langley Moore was a Byron expert herself. Um, I am not a Byron expert, nor indeed have I read any Byron at all. So um, oh. I think some of it may be lost on me. But it is it is quite funny. And if she means him to be terrible, then it's great. If she thinks he's a sympathetic character, then I have questions. <laughs> 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 what are you reading? Um, I'm currently reading. Um, it's a newish Persephone. It's called The Call mm. um, by, I think, Edith Ayrton Zangwill. I think that's about right. Or Ethel. Edith or Ethel, I can't quite remember. Um, I'm about 100 pages in. Do you know what? It's one of those Persephones that I think it, it should have been republished because it's, it's a suffragette novel and it's it's a, a different voice. Um, am I loving it and looking forward to picking up the pages every night? Not especially. It's a little bit plodding at the moment. And it's, it's, you know, it's all just a little bit, um, how would I, what's a kind way of putting it? Um, it's a little bit cliched. Okay. Is it like a cliche that came later or is it of its time cliche? Of its time, you know, every, mm. all of the women are, are, are beautiful and, you know, the women who decide to wear nice clothes are, are silly and frivolous and, you know, um, there's a frustrated wife and all this kind of thing. It's just, it's all, the characters are a little bit cardboard cut out. But um, I'm hoping it'll get better. Nothing's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I never read No Surrender, or I still haven't read No Surrender by Constance Maud, wasn't it? Which was the other suffragette book that yeah. I remember you, I think it was you said that, um, again, it was interesting sociologically, but not particularly well written. Yeah. So is the, where, where is the great suffragette novel? Well, I haven't found it yet. No, actually, no, I tell a lie. I, I remember reading, um, uh, oh, I can't, I've got a terrible memory for these sorts of things. I know the name of the writer, Helen Zenner Smith, I think. Hey, not so quiet? Yes. That's so good. Look. Um, <laughs> I remember really enjoying that and thinking that was fantastic, actually. And, um, the couple of books that Enid Bagnold published, so The Happy Foreigner and uh. Diary That Dates are excellent as well. I did like The Tree of Heaven by Mae Sinclair, which is sort of these sprawling family things where lots of, all, all the children have um, different themes going through the novel as they grow older, but one of the daughters does become a suffragette, and that is a really interesting, um, yeah. particularly since Mae Sinclair was part of, I can't remember the right name now, but she was part of various different militant and non-militant suffrage movements in her time, I think. Yes. Was she a member of the Fabian Society? Or am I thinking of someone else? Ooh, I think I think I think she could well have been. Mm, I feel like she was a friend of the webs. Um, but I think it is interesting, actually, as a genre, the suffragette novels, because I think for me, certainly the ones I've read, some of them, in their zeal to extol the causes of the suffragettes, they're just a little bit too, um, I suppose, preachy. I would say a little mm. bit. Um, they overdo it a little bit. 
And I guess that's partly like 1910s and 20s novels yes. were much more open with, you know, being overtly didactic and stuff in a way yes. that we would look, wouldn't do now. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's worth, it's, it's worth, I don't want to put people off. I think it's worth a read. I mean, I'm a quarter of the way through, so I shall plough on to the end because I've got a, a, a reading, um, a reading resolution for 2020. Mm. I'm going to do my best to stick to it. I mean, I've, I'm probably not going to last all year, but I'll see, I'll see how strong I can be. Now, I've already decided my one exception. So my, my main, my main thing <laughs> yes, is tell that. Tell us what it is first before we um, get the yeah. exceptions. <laughs> um, my main thing is that I'm, I'm not going to buy any books. Okay. And I'm, I have to read all of the unread books on my shelf. On oh, my wow. shelf. Um, and I'm going to be working through them on a shelf-by-shelf shelf basis. So mm-hmm. I have, as people who have been listening before will know, um, organise my bookshelves alphabetically. So um, I will be working my way through, and then whichever books I've not read on that particular shelf, I will read in the order that they come alphabetically. So my first one that I read was, as I texted you this morning, mm-hmm. uh, L-Shaped Room um, by... Uh, Oh. Lynn Reed Banks. Thank you, Lynn Reed Banks. Um, who she did write the Indian in the cupboard, didn't she? She did, yeah. yeah which I loved as a child, but um, you know, I will, I'll save my opinions of L-shaped room because we um, obviously want to, might want to discuss that at a later date. I think so, so that was that was my first one that I read, um, and you know, I've been meaning to read it for ages. So I was like, this is great. I read it on the plane back from Jordan. Um, and then this was the next one that I picked up. And I'm, I think it's going to make for an eclectic year's reading because it's, mm. I'm not going to be really choosing as, uh, based on how I feel or what I want to read or the seasons or whatever. I'm, I'm going to be quite strict about forcing my way through because otherwise there will be books. I'm like, Oh no, I don't fancy that. I won't get around to it. And then I'll still be in the same situation next year as I am this year. And then I've got tons of unread books. So I'm so embarrassed with people coming around and saying, Oh gosh, you've got so many books. Have you read them all? And then the answer is no, I've not read about half of them. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to do my best to plough through, but my one exception that I am going to buy when it comes out um, is The Mirror and the Light, the new Wolfhall trilogy book, the last one, uh, because I have been waiting for that for years, so I feel that's justified. And I've got a book voucher that I'm, I've am i saved from Christmas that I'm going to spend it on. So there we are. Oh, nice. I, I, think, yeah. it's a, I think it's a lovely idea and a really good idea. Um, as your podcast podcast co-host, I can only imagine it will make choosing books to read for a nightmare. <laughs> but but, apart from but that, I don't know actually because a lot of the books I haven't read are the sort of books you like. So well, there is that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have any reading, reading resolutions this year. Um, I've already bought ten books, I think. So it's not. Oh, that. Simon. <laughs> I know. I went to one. The second hand books have been wanted, and. I found the stuff in their one pound and fifty p section was so good. Oh dear! I came away with piles of stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I was, I was trying to buy less or more fewer books. Uh, but then it's already it's, it's the ninth of January now, and it's already a complete mess. So yeah, I think after project my reading pro- project names last year, I'm just gonna have a year of reading what I like as well. So um, yeah, because you you know you are quite good at doing those challenges but it, it does, is a bit of a restriction sometimes isn't it and i read 80 books last year with people's names in the title which is impressive i mean who knew there were so many books with people's names in the title <laughs> and it's what made me pick the book of william off the shelf so it found me my there favorite book last year there we are wonderful lovely so yes as Rita said at the beginning the first half we are looking at the quite broad um topic of should writers only write what they know and um that's you know it's like 
it's like a stereotype of advice, isn't it? Say, all right, we're going to do all this. Um, which I I don't know. Uh, what does that mean in practice? I don't know. Like nobody wants to read a book that's about my life. <laughs> for example, it's very well. well. Put it aside, <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's lots of different ways we consider this. Like, should you write about? Should you only write about your own gender? Should you only write about your own race? Should you only write about your own job? Your etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, where, where do you want? To, what direction should we take it in first, Rachel? Um, I, I think this is a really interesting question, and I've noticed in in recent years it's become more of a cause celebre amongst uh, you know the types of readers who are on Twitter, people not like mm. me who can't cope with technology. Um, <laughs> and there seems to be a sort of furore every time somebody who's not from a particular um, social group um, or racial group or gender group. Um, it writes has the temerity to write about um, something that they've not directly experienced. And I find that whole concept completely bizarre because the whole point of writing and the whole point of creativity is to use your imagination and to suggest that people are completely unable to enter into the experiences of other people without having been that person themselves, I just think is ridiculous. It's like saying, well, you know, how can you write, create, it's like saying to JK Rowling, well, how on earth were you able to write about witches and wizards without being a witch or wizard yourself? Um, we wouldn't say that. So why do we say to people, well, you can't write about women because you're not a woman. You can't write about uh, the experience of being a, a black teenager in, in the hood uh, without having been one yourself, etc. Because also something that I frustrates me about that too is to say that, well, I'm a woman, but my experience of being a woman is completely different to someone else's, another woman's experience of being a woman. So are we all now spokespeople for our entire social mm. class and race and gender? Of course we're not. So I just, that argument does not hold water with me whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's, um, as you say, it's, hashtag own voices as well as often called has become a big thing recently and that's sort of like getting people to tell their own stories yeah. which i think um and i have to acknowledge obviously i'm a, well, not obviously but i am a white man um and therefore at the top you of the privilege tree <laughs> so um but um i think there's a danger of conflating the idea of encouraging there to be more diverse voices in publishing mm -hmm. with the idea that people can then only write about their own um, background and race and gender. Mm. Because absolutely there should be more diverse voices in publishing. and We need to hear stories from everyone and yeah. everywhere. Um, but I don't think the way to do that is to censor what other people are writing. Um, and publishing is a very... I've worked in publishing. It's a very white-dominated industry. Um, mm. It's not particularly... It's not as male dominated as most industries, <laughs> but um, at the top of the tree, I guess it probably is more that, so than throughout. But it certainly is a very middle class. It's not. It's not. It's not a wide range of working class or um, people of color, etc. There, so that needs to change. The field they're representing needs to change. Um, I think that I think the danger is when you start assuming that's the same thing as telling people what they can and can't write about. Um, although then that falls, I think, into two different questions about whether or not they, an author is capable of writing about it and whether or not they should write about it. Because a lot of it is sort of has assumed those are the same things. I, I was trying to think of this because um, going through, where am I a minority? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I was thinking when I'm reading about people writing about being a twin, obviously twins are not a discriminated against group. <laughs> <laughs> Having said, I mean, we're not, but if, <laughs> I, I want to say to people, imagine if the thing that was 
you've considered one of the most important things about your identity. Whenever you mention it, someone asks you whether or not you're evil. <laughs> it's, it's a bit tiring. <laughs> Are you the evil one? Don't ask a twin that. Um, anyway, um, I think in terms of... It, if someone writes a twin character who's not a twin, they are not speaking for a marginalised group. They're not taking my voice because I'm not a marginalised group. But I do judge quite heavily on whether or not they can do it well. And as you say, in the same way that you don't speak for all women, I don't speak for every experience of being a twin. But I can identify when people have done it badly. Like, And the, the way that people tend to do it badly, I know we're not exclusively talking about twins here, but... <laughs> in, <laughs> Make it all about you, Simon. Classic white man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, If a a character is a twin and they're constantly surprised by being a twin, then that's my main bugbear. They're forever (laughs) looking at their twin and thinking, gosh, we look so similar. (laughs) Really? You just struck you after 28 years or something? Um, (laughs) uh, For what it's worth, Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker is the best example of writing about being a twin that I've read. I don't know if Dorothy Baker was a twin or not, but she does it very well. well I don't think she was, actually. Uh, so, very impressed with her. Mm. Um, but, sorry, we'll stop talking <laughs> eventually. But, uh, speaking about writing about women, and we have done an episode on women writing about men and mm. men writing about women, this Doris Langley Moore one, the way that she writes the main female character, feels like the most male writing I've ever come across, in as much as She's beautiful, therefore she must be stupid. And the main character just, you know, is constantly thinking, well, she, we shouldn't worry her little head about Byron, etc. Um, and again, it might be her trying to just show us that the main character, the, the narrator is not great. But it does, if I, if I read any of her descriptions of the character who's called Jocasta, um, on its own, I would 98%, you know, say that's a man writing that and not a particularly enlightened one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pick up on any of the things I said there, Rachel, in that, you know, diatribe slash monologue <laughs> I just went on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you on the diversity front. And I think it's very important that that people have from more diverse backgrounds have the opportunity to, to write and to have their voices heard. But I, I think also this whole own voices thing and, and talking about how people can only write about things they know is is also very limiting and discriminatory and patronising towards people from marginalised communities because what it says is we only want to read about your experience of being part of a marginalised community. Well, actually, why can't people from marginalised communities write fantasy novels or novels Mm, about people or whatever else? You know, why why should they have to carry this burden of being some kind of soapbox for their particular group i just don't i don't understand why that would be a a position we'd want to put people in if we're experienced wanting to experience a more diverse body of fiction does that fiction all have to be um you know draw its roots back to people's lived experiences i don't necessarily think so um and i think that's incredibly um I think off-putting for me in terms mm. of thinking about, you know, oh yes, let's push for diversity. Let's make sure that we've got people of every of every race, every you know, marginalised group writing about their experiences. Well, you know, what if they don't want to write about their experiences? Why should they feel that they have to in order to get published or to get attention? Like, I, I I think that's even worse. Yeah, that's really. I haven't really thought about that, but that is true. If you're just not extending them to be the spokesperson, but sort of. Um, like the apologist almost feel like you, well exactly you, yeah. and it's and it's also saying well you know what 
you're not creative or clever enough to, to create something interesting or, you know, to, to come up with new um, imaginative possibilities. All you can do is, is tell us all about how bad it is being you. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's all a bit like that misery memoir stuff. Oh, I just, yeah. you know, I just think, really, do we want to limit people to just being able to write about their own sphere of experience? Because if we all did, did that, then, you know, some of the most wonderful literature that's come out of the world in the last, you know, 500 years might very well not exist. I mean, did Shakespeare live at the court of King Duncan and, and see the murder <laughs> of him by Macbeth? Did he live with fairies in the forest? No, he didn't. But he wrote wonderful plays about these things nonetheless. So, you know, would we be saying to Shakespeare, you can only write about your experience of, you know, living in Stratford-upon-Avon? No, we wouldn't. So why are we putting this ridiculous um, kind of stricture around people nowadays? I just think it's bizarre. And I tell you what it is, it's social media and it's political correctness gone mad. People jumping on these bandwagons, thinking that they're all right on and woke, which I, as a term, I detest, <laughs> uh, by, you know, saying, oh, you know, I'm standing up for diversity, I'm standing up for marginalised voices. Actually, you're not. What you're doing is stamping out people's voices by dictating to them what they can and can't write about. And who is anybody to, to tell people that? It is, yeah. I mean, it is alarming when censorship comes from either right wing or left wing so yeah, yeah um yeah why can't I, people just write about what they want to write about and i, I think the place where i would find right about what you know does make sense is when it's saying what you know in terms of emotions or in terms yeah Absolutely. so yeah so like don't try and guess what it's like to i don't know feel experience grief if you've never experienced grief i don't, or maybe, or maybe you can, but I think it shows unconvincing if someone tries to write what they think an emotion is like from television or from, or from reading other books. Whereas if you say, I've taken, even if you've not lost anyone really close to you, if you think, I've taken my feelings of anxiety that this loss might happen, or even like I've taken my anxiety at the, or my experience of losing a grandparent and imagining what it would be like to lose a sister or something. I don't know. There's ways you can transfer emotions you've experienced to different scenarios. Um, and that's where I think authenticity is sh clearly, you know, shown or not shown, or one of the places. Mm. I mean, I think you've got to be careful not to say. I mean, uh, people who say, you know, I'm writing this about this community, and I am, you know, the, I am representative of this community, blah blah blah. That's I don't agree with that. But in terms of, you know, I think everybody can. I mean, I, I slightly disagree with you on on the emotions front because, again, okay. where where's the power of imagination coming into this? I mean, the whole point of, of fiction is that people are able to create the most wonderful characters and settings and, you know, situations out of, out of nothing, you know, out of just the magic that comes into their minds. You know, sometimes those things are based on real life experiences. Sometimes they're not. And, you know, I think that we shouldn't restrict people's creativity or the realms in which they wish to express themselves. And if, you know, yeah. I, I don't understand why it, it's okay to say to people, well, you can only write about the people that you know and, and the world that you know about and the, the social class you mix with and the people who've got the same kind of skin as you. I mean, I just think it's absurd. I don't understand that at all. And I just think it's divisive, actually. Yeah, I guess what I, I meant... I see. I, I can't really decide what I think about um, in terms of emotions, but I just think it's obvious when someone's f 
Yes, no, I mean, I've yeah. read... Or maybe it's not obvious if they're faking it. Maybe I just haven't noticed if they're faking it, if they fake it well. I don't know. Yeah. No, well, that's... I mean, I, yeah. I have read some... I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but, you know, like, I, I've read some things where, you know, books about sisters, for example, where I've read it and thought that's not at all what it... For me, that doesn't reflect at all what it's like to, to have a sister. Or, um, you know, that doesn't... Ref- or I've read books about teachers, and I've thought, well, that doesn't reflect at all for me what it is to be a teacher. However, it doesn't reflect to me what my experience is of that but that doesn't mean to say that it wouldn't reflect another person's experience of being that in that situation so who am i to say well this is wrong you know reading a book for example you know written by a man who is is trying to depict a woman for me that might feel like oh i don't really buy that this is a you know a real woman i can tell that a man has written this etc etc whereas another woman might read it and think oh this is really accurate i can't believe a man wrote this so who who are any of us to say this person has done it wrong because they weren't in my in my skin none of us are in each other's skins and another point that i feel is overlooked sometimes in these things is that you don't have to read a book because someone's published it <laughs> and, no, you, I mean, and a publisher doesn't have to publish it because someone's written it so you know we i think it, pe- the way that sometimes people write about these things is, yeah, the idea that the book exists at all is an affront to them personally. Like, well, well, no, everyone want just it. wants to be outraged yeah. by everything these days, don't they? And it's like, chill out. I mean, seriously, <laughs> who cares? And if that's all you've got to worry about, then you're lucky, in my opinion. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, um, but again, as we both said, like that we're not saying that publishing should say exactly as it is. Let's get more people from many different backgrounds having access publishing and that and i mean i worry that arts funding being cut in this country um across the board is not going to make that more likely to happen no but um but let's not let's not restrict people you know if we want to encourage diversity we have to allow people to write about whatever they like no matter what background they come from and paying lip service to diversity by saying oh well we're only going to publish books that by people from this background who are writing about people from that background, I think is completely missing the point. That's what I think about that. <laughs> That's about that. I would say I think it is also important that people can read themselves represented in literature. Yes. Uh, but there's plenty of scope for that without telling people what they can and can't write about. Right. So it sounds like we um, have both learned on the side of writers don't have to write what they know, they can write what they like. Yes, quite. And then if it's good enough to be published and you want to read yeah. it, then... Exactly. If you don't like it, don't, don't read it. No one's forcing you to. Right, okay. Oh, yeah. we've started the new year with opinions, haven't oh, we? Oh, we have. <laughs> um, before we go into the second half, or second topic, um, we have had a request for some reading advice. I oh, put out a wonderful. plea on Twitter. Lovely. Um, in fact, we had a couple, so we're going to gregory's question next week but um kate from um handheld press who do some wonderful reprints of um mostly sort of early 20th century novels but also a wide range of things um have has there's quite a lot here so could you suggest entry novels by 1950s to 80s novelists for the nervous reader eg and the realist that i'll give in a minute so all the big names one knows and has never tried so i'm going to go through these one by one and we can say where we suggest to start I, i will say as a spoiler that Whilst I've read most of them, I've not read more than one book by many of them, so I won't have a lot to say, but maybe you will. And we're starting with Iris Murdoch. Never read any. I have read three and I don't like her, so... No, I haven't. I've read two. I've read The Sandcastle and The Sea of the Sea, um, and I'd recommend starting with one that is neither of those. <laughs> um, Doris Lessing. Never read any. I have read Memoirs of a Survivor and The Fifth Child, and... Um, 
I, yeah, I, again, not a massive overview of her book, but Memoirs of Survival was my first, and it intrigued me. It's sort of dystopian novel about, no, I don't remember anything else about it, but it's dystopian <laughs> novel. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Um, Anthony Pohl. Oh, Dance to the Music of Time. Mm. Never read any of them. Me neither. <laughs> not, very, not very good at this, are we? We'll get you eventually. Uh, C.P. Snow. Never read any. <laughs> I've only read The Masters, and it's one of the most boring books I've ever read. <laughs> Don't start there. Um, Maggie, I want to say Gee, possibly G. Maggie G, don't know. Never read any. Didn't she write the one about Virginia Woolf in New York or something? Yes, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. Manhattan, which yeah. I thought was brilliant. Um, oh. I, so definitely feel free to start there. Um, I don't... Because she said... Um, Kate's put her in this 1950s, 1980s. I didn't know her career went back to the 80s or earlier. Yeah. Um, but I loved Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. It got mixed reviews, but I think it's really good i'll have to try it once um, i finish this year obviously oh yes of course uh-huh. um i assume you're still allowed to use the library if need be if if, if things get desperate yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got two authors left rachel i believe okay. that oh, you knew um margaret drabble i know i read anything <laughs> <laughs> this is not well, my period of literature at all it's a bit late isn't it um although we might well be reading the millstone yeah um, in the future, which is one of the two Margaret Drabble novels I read. I also read The Garrick Year. Uh, I really disliked The Garrick Year to the point that I thought I might never read another book by her, but someone, I can't remember who, but very fervently recommended The Millstone, so I read it, and it's really good. So um, don't start with The Garrick Year, but why not start with The Millstone? Finally, Rachel, this is the last chance to show that you know anything at all (laughs) about books. (laughs) Howard Jacobson. I'm so sorry. People, send in requests for the 1930s, please. Or, or indeed the Victorian period, you'd be ace. Yes. Um, I've only read The Finkler Question, um, which I got about a third of the way through and I thought it was really bad. <laughs> so I'm not loving this, this list of authors and I'm afraid we probably haven't helped. But uh, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan by Maggie Gee and The Millstone by Margaret Drabble are both really good. Um, sorry, Kate. Sorry, Kate. And. Um, and yeah, well, she did say for all the big names one knows and has never tried. So you've proved her point. Yes. I mean, I've heard of all of them, but yeah. never felt compelled to pick them up. I mean, I really actually am not. I mean, I was talking about this to my kids at school today. I'm not I really am not well read at all um, in the sort of middle years of the middle to late years of the 20th century. I don't know why. I'm just not. Well, I was quite I thought I mean, I'm not particularly well in this period, but I did feel very lucky that she'd happened to pick a lot of authors that I have tried, even if I've not tried very many of their books. Um, <laughs> if you would like a, this expert <laughs> advice to be given to you, uh, please do get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. Uh, thanks to people who sent in topic suggestions. We've had quite a little flurry of them. Are you getting those emails I'm forwarding to you, Rachel? You never yes. reply to them. Cool, great. Because you send them at like half six in the morning when I'm frantically trying to get ready for work. That's why. <laughs> I promise you that I've not been awake at half six in the morning for many months. <laughs> but, um, great. So second half. Uh, yes. Whose Body by Dorothy Osayas from 1923 and 450 from Paddington from 1957. Um, which would you like to introduce us to? Um, I'll do Whose Body because I've read it most recently. Great. Go for it. So Whose Body is the first in, um, I think it's her first novel, actually, 
Um, and is the first in the Lord Peter detective series. She wrote a couple of detective books that are do not feature Lord Peter Whimsy. Um, and Lord Peter Whimsy is uh, an, uh, an aristocrat, an aristocrat, aristocrat. Um, the young, everybody wants to be. Everyone wants to be an aristocrat. Um, he's the younger son of a duke, and he's uh, it's the it, the novels are set just after World War One, and um, he's a sort of gentleman sleuth of private means who has a very luxurious lifestyle in London mm. and um, everybody's heard of him and, and knows of him by reputation we're never quite sure why and how um, and he hears tell of a loose family connection of a man who's gone home uh, to, to his flat after work and has found a body in his bath dun, dun, dun. and he lives in a block of flats and it's clear that the body has come in through the window um, but how it's got there, um, nobody knows. And at the same time, a prominent um, businessman has gone missing um, in London who bears a passing resemblance but is not the corpse found in the bath. And these two seemingly unconnected incidents, Lord Peter manages to link together as he as he makes his way through what, what proves to be quite a thorny mystery. <laughs> yeah. and what, is the, what is the body wearing besides nothing? Uh, besides, yes, so it's a naked body and it's got a pair of um, is it, is it glasses, isn't it? Well, as oh, a, yes. the, re- the reason I've asked you to say it is because I was hoping you'd be able to tell me how to pronounce it. I would say Pontsnay, but I'm not sure that's correct. Oh, yeah, Pontsnay, that's fine. Okay, yeah. great. Um, just to add to the mystery and to make it a more yeah. beguiling scene, I think. Well, yes, 450 from Paddington also has a very intriguing premise. Mrs. McGillicuddy is on a train, the indeed... Oh, is she on the 450 from Paddington or does she see the 450 from Paddington? I can't remember. But she's... No, um, she sees the 450 from Paddington. Um, She's heading in the same direction as that train. It's one of those things where the trains come alongside each other for a little bit. Um, And whilst that's happening, she can see through the window of the train opposite and a man is strangling a girl. And she sees that the girl has died. Um, and then the trains go off in different, well, the same direction, but no longer next to each other. So she goes off to report this, but nobody has been found. And they don't know. They they, they think it was just this old lady who doesn't know what she's talking about. But her friend, Jane Marple, Miss Marple, knows that her friend doesn't you know, make things up or imagine things. And so she decides to try and start investigating this, which she does with the help of a celebrity housemate. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> sort of makes up this concept of someone who's so good at cleaning that every house in the country will be willing to to have her have slightest whim. Um, and she, I think she used to work for Miss Marvel's nephew, I think, something like that. Um, and she secures uh, a place in a house near the row where they think the body might have been thrown out of um, railway carriage. Uh, and meets this um in fighting family mm. oh, i should say we're not going to give away big spoilers end, or the no. endings or anything of these books because that would be cheating yes it would now um you were quite resistant to reading the dorothy i'll say <laughs> because you've had a negative experience before of reading yes. her so do you want to start off with with saying why you felt that way Sure. So this is actually my third Dorothy Isaiah's. I read Strong Poison a long time ago. I was about 17, I think, um, which is the first one that's got Harriet Vane in. Yes. Um, and I, I think it was 
well, anyway, an early one with Harry Vane, um, which I quite enjoyed. And then a few years later, I read Gordy Knight, which I hated. Um, and everybody it, loves that one. Don't I know, everyone loves that one. Oh, uh, I mean, it's enormously long, which is obviously not a thing I love. It's also, um, the plot's not particularly good, and whimsy in it is so excruciatingly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I will say now, I found him much less annoying in this book, and I think that was like maybe at least seventy five percent because he doesn't have that stupid motto. He's like going around going at my whimsy, <laughs> whatever. You want to punch him in the face? <laughs> um, he is alarmingly privileged. Uh, I do find his method of detection, which just seems to be saying my aunt's a judge or something, <laughs> or I own the House of Commons, I don't know. It seems to be largely he just sort of strong arms people and is doing what he says because he's really rich. Is is not not that charming to me. <laughs> um, but I did much more enjoy this novel than Gordy Knight. Um, oh, good. Yeah, it w- I think what both these novels have in common is a really great premise that that's all you know seeing a body through be, be killed through a train window and how is this body in the bath with the Fonsenay um both really clever right or, or really visual and memorable and yeah um I'm not sure that Sayers is as successful in terms of explaining why it's happened um again I won't won't give major spoilers but sh- I, it felt less satisfying at the end when I when we sort of found out how the events had led to this. She relies a bit more on con- coincidence, a bit more on clumsiness of the murderer for the detection to happen. Um, and I think people sometimes unjustly say that Agatha Christie, you know, has she does have coincidences, but she never is unfair to the reader, and she doesn't do you know Sherlock Holmes style or someone has left their hair pointing to the east or something. Um, <laughs> Uh, whereas says has a few more of those uh, late Victorian detective no- style things, and you know the novel was written thirty years earlier, so I guess it's not as surprising that it's it was very early days of of um, the golden age of detection, and we hadn't quite moved on yet. But um, yeah, I, ha- I found her plot less satisfying, but Agatha Christie never goes wrong with plot in my mind. No, and I, I think what's interesting is is that they are very different crime writers. And, and I think you're right in saying that, that part of that is, is due to the time in which they're writing. Um, for me, Dorothy, I'll say, is, is better at, at character. And even though, you know, you've got Poirot and you've got Miss Marple and um, those those are characters that recur frequently, we never really get inside the head of those characters and we're never really encouraged by Agatha Christie to, to care particularly. And, you know, like, for example, in the 450 um from Paddington, um, <laughs> that, you know, somebody's been murdered and we don't really care. And we, I, I feel like we do care in Whose Body about the um, Reuben who's been murdered and, you know, we, we do care about him and we are made to feel like it's it's a tragedy and that, that he has been killed. And, um, you know, you care more about the characters and, and you feel more of a connection to Lord Peter himself. I mean, I found it really moving the bit where he um he has his nightmare and imagines he's back in the trenches and his manservant who was his batman during the war like goes and has to comfort him and you know takes him back to bed and everything and i thought that's really interesting that she's included that as a, an element of his character it's a weakness of his um 
And that's, that's sorry, I, I, yeah. I think it's interesting because I definitely I, I do agree with you. That was a really moving bit, and I think she tries to give a bit more depth to the to to whimsy. I didn't care at all about the dead body or any of the other people involved, and I didn't I didn't mind that. When I'm reading a Golden Age detective novel, I'm just there for the puzzle. Really, I don't care about any of the other characters. <laughs> um, I think it's something that's often said about Agatha Christie is that her characters are two dimensional, which I think's generally very unfair. I think she's much better novelist than people um, allow of her. Uh, I, w- I will agree with you that I don't think you care, particularly since the people, not not in this one, but in others, the people person who's killed has spent the first chapter being unpleasant to everyone. You're quite happy to see the <laughs> back of them. But, yeah. um, I just read Eccle Poirot's Christmas over Christmas, um, and that, you know, Simeon. It's a really good one, actually. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yes, Simeon, I can't remember his name, but he's the um, the the person who's murdered, which isn't really a spoiler because he's so horrible to everyone <laughs> in the first chapter that it's very evident that he'll be killed. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that you did feel more sympathy for other characters, like the disappeared man or whatever, in, in Who's Body. Yeah, because I mean, I felt like we saw his wife and she was so upset. And, you know, I just thought, oh, this is I'm being encouraged to feel a connection to this character in a way that I'm I I wouldn't be. I I don't feel like Agatha Christie ever wants us to connect necessarily with with the character who's been killed or their family members. The whole focus is on solving the mystery, which I do agree. Agatha Christie writes much better but um, I do remember from reading 450 from Paddington, and I'm the same with every, every Agatha Christie novel, actually. I always think, well, there's no way on earth I would ever have come to that conclusion myself. <laughs> um, have you read uh, The Body in the Library? Yes, I have, but many years ago. In fact, I think that was my first Agatha Christie. Because ah, that's one where I feel like she it's a really moving bit where she's thinking about the, the person who's killed there. Miss Marple sort of has a bit about her where she is very affecting, I think. Um, and in fact, but yeah, I agree with you in general. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe have victims sort of divide into those who you think deserve it and those who you feel s- a smaller number who you feel sorry for. And I think that she does those more in Miss Marple's Empire. There's another one in a um, pocket full of rye, I think. Um, where it's, it's the only times you see Miss Marple get angry is when a, a, a stupid but innocent person is killed because they got in the wrong place. I think she's, yeah, which I, I've just thought of, but yeah. Um, my issue with Forfrey from Paddington, which I read years and years ago, but um, and thankfully didn't remember the solution when I was rereading it until the last sort of couple of pages, um, is we don't see that much of Miss Marple, which is a no, shame. We don't. Um, you've got this celebrity housemaid, and you've got her, <laughs> her friend, but she basically just she said, Miss Marple doesn't stay in the house. She she's just there to, for them to chat to every now and then when she comes up with another idea. So in terms of her detection, she's only really detecting sort of in the final chapter. <laughs> uh, every now and, and she's then, quite, saying, oh, and she's, you know, she, she's very reliant on other people doing the work for her. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of takes away the the sense of her being the detective in the novel, I think. Out of interest, why did you choose this one to compare with Whose Body? Um, I think it was the idea of, you know, the the body being abandoned and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, why? What were you? Oh, I just wondered because they didn't seem that similar to me. So I was just wondering if there was a rationale. I mean, there rarely is a rationale with me, but (laughs) somewhere at some point, I must have thought something. (laughs) Um, Here's a a fun fact. Um, 
although I'm not quite sure how I'm going to say. Did you? I can't remember if it was an introduction, but have you read about what was originally going to be an identifying feature in Whose Body? No. Um, all I'll say is that originally he was going to be able to tell that the naked gentleman was Jewish. So oh, that I was, see. <laughs> yes. I'm glad we've spared that. Yes, her publisher decided that the public in 1923 weren't quite ready for that. Which is <laughs> <laughs> probably for the best. Yes, wow. not too much description of the naked body, please. <laughs> so if we're agreeing that Agatha Christie generally is better at plot, and I think in this case, much, much better at the plot, and you say <laughs> she's better at and that Dorothy says is better at the characters, which is mm. more important for you in, in a Golden Age detective novel? Well, I mean, a, a detective novel, it has to be the plot, doesn't it? But the thing is, you know, because I'm absolutely useless at solving mysteries anyway, I mean, that element of it doesn't matter to me as much because I've got no hope in hell of finding out, of figuring it out for myself anyway. Um, so I just enjoy... I enjoy Dorothy L. Sayers books because I enjoy the character of, of Peter Whimsey and I enjoy the fact that each successive book I find out more about him and if you read the because there are fewer books you read them in order and you feel like you see his growth as a character you see him learning from mistakes and meeting people and you know meeting Harriet Vane and everything else whereas I feel like with Agatha Christie you don't need to read them in order you don't get that sense of, of character development with with Marple or Poirot um, mm. it is very much you're reading it for the mystery and, and that's it. Whereas Dorothy L. Sayers, you've got both. Okay. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, There's definitely no need to read any of Christie's in order. Although annoyingly, if you ever read Cards on the Table, or I don't know if you have read it, yeah. um, there's a paragraph which just gives away the murderers to four of her other books for no reason, which is very oh. frustrating. So be on the lookout for that if you are reading it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard for me to compare because I don't, find the character of Peter Whimsey particularly endearing. I didn't hate him in this one, but I have no wish to read anything more about him. Um, and I don't think I've read any other series, Golden Age Detective novelists. I've read lots of other sort of standalones. Um, so I haven't really had the experience of wanting to, to follow them and see them develop. Um, I do love seeing the same detective come back if it's not you know, progressions. I'm, it's all, and, and, and the sort of accompanying people, it's always great to meet Captain Hastings and um, Ariadne Oliver in the Poirot novels. Yeah. Um, I don't particularly care about seeing Nephew Raymond in the, in the <laughs> books. Uh, but um, and yeah, I want to say, first, I never work out who it is and I often try really hard not to work out who it is, but I just, I really want to be satisfied at the end. I want to think every piece of the puzzle was put together even if there's no chance I would have got it, I want to think that I've still been treated fairly. Um, and I think with 450 from Paddington, the clue, clues were there. Potentially you could have worked it out. Uh, I certainly didn't feel cheated. I didn't feel cheated in Whose Body. I just felt like it could have... When they unveil who the murderer is, I think there's no reason why it wasn't anybody else. <laughs> it didn't really feel particularly... Had Obviously it had to be... the. Um, that person, whereas for Pennington, it felt like it, I don't know, it felt more like, oh yes, it, it could, I suppose it couldn't have been anybody else. I don't know if you felt the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, I think both of them are great books. I think both of them are really enjoyable, really good fun. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, certainly, certainly very easy and enjoyable to read. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think for me, Agatha Christie is reliably enjoyable, and I, I do kind of like the element of every story being different, and the fact that I don't have to worry about reading them in order. And I, I really enjoyed the premise of Four Fifty from Paddington, and I, I enjoyed that element of. Agatha Christie exploring the concept that because it's an old woman who's saying something she's not believed and that mm. of her having to prove that she's right and these two older women working together to prove everybody wrong I loved that um, and I, you're right you know Lord Peter Whimsy is irritatingly privileged um, and unaware of his privilege and um, but at the same time I think Dorothy L. says because she's writing that a little bit earlier she is writing more of her time yeah yeah I don't know why 450 and wasn't just Miss Marple on the train who saw the murder. It would have made just as much sense. Maybe the police would have instinctively have believed her. Well, know. yes, because she's got, you know, a history of being a detective, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point, actually. I don't know. I don't know why. Curious. Mm, why did she do that? That would be good to... Well, maybe it's because she wanted Miss Marple to sort of be on the on the periphery. I guess, and she often, you know, in a few books she is on the periphery. Yeah. It's a bit of a shame. But, you know, she's old. She needs to have a bit of a rest. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> right, so yeah. Um, I think it's clear that whilst I'm glad that I have um, come back to Dorothy says, and I would read more of her now that I know that oh, good. My, my, my hatred for <laughs> Peter Whimsy has abated a little <laughs> into a mild dislike, <laughs> um, I will still be picking for 50 from Paddington. And which one are you going to go for? Well, do you know what? I Just because I find Lord Peter Whimsey so charming, I'm going to go for his body. Okay. Yeah. One all. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm right in saying in the next episode, we, we're going to do those ones that Bill suggested, uh, Loving by Henry Green and um, The Last September by Elizabeth Bowen. Does that still sound all right to you? Yes, I will need to find my copy of Loving, which I believe is at my sister's house. Um, and that was your Christmas task. Yeah, which I forgot. Um, <laughs> but I will, I will track that down. Yes. Great. Two country house novels, I believe. Yes, indeed. Uh, so thanks for getting in touch, Bill, and suggesting that. Um, and as I say, tea or books at gmail.com if you have ideas, particularly if you have ideas for the first half, i.e. things that don't require us to buy books with Rachel's book buying band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we love hearing from anyone and everyone. Um, all the books and authors mentioned are at stuckinabook.com and we will chat to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye. Bye.